Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. Just a heads up about today's story. It concerns a crime against a child, so no little ears, please. Listener discretion is advised. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to Baltimore, Maryland, the United States, the most populous city in Maryland, and it has a long history of being an important seaport, and is the birthplace of the American national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. It was July 25th, 1984, and nine-year-old Dawn Hamilton woke up surrounded by all of her closest friends. She'd had a sleepover at a house the night before, and the girls were excited for a fun day ahead of them. After breakfast, they all decided to go out and enjoy the warm summer sun with a game of hide-and-seek. They headed out to Becky's Pond, a local nature area with light brush and trees. A good place to play hide-and-seek. When they got to the pond, her friends decided that Dawn was it. So, as Dawn counted to twenty, all her friends went and hid in the foliage. After counting, Dawn went in search of her friends. But... Try as she might, she just couldn't find them. However, she came across two young boys and asked them to help her. But the boys had just caught a turtle and this was a far more exciting prospect to them than helping a little girl find her friends. As they declined her offer, a man approached the children. He was stood on a mound above them. The blazing sun was high in the sky behind him as they looked up at him squinting against the bright light in their eyes. The man offered to help Dawn find her friends. At 2.30pm, Dawn was found laying face down in a pile of leaves. She had been brutally attacked, sexually assaulted, and had been choked to death. Dawn's tragic murder would become the catalyst for monumental changes in the way criminal investigation is conducted in the United States and across the world and it would have life-altering consequences for one man. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. So who had done this to Dawn? And why would her tragic murder change the way criminal investigation is conducted? Hmm... Let's find out. The Baltimore police were called and they began an extensive search of the area and put out an appeal for witnesses. It wasn't long before the two boys that had spoken to Dawn at Becky's Pond came forward. The police sat the boys down together and went through their testimony. They described the man as over six foot tall, slim, tanned, with light curly hair and a moustache. The police then asked him to help them build a composite sketch using an identikit. But the boys struggled with the sketch and neither could firmly agree that the composite looked exactly like the man they had seen. They thought the eyes looked the same, but the moustache, it was all wrong. The man they saw on that fateful day had a handlebar moustache. You know, the type that stretches down on either side of the mouth to the chin. But the composite had a man with a small moustache. Several other people had come forward citing they had seen Dawn with a man. But only one woman had gotten a close enough look at the man to be able to help the police with her composite. But her sketch did not match that of the boys. And so the police dismissed it. The boys' composite was broadcast repeatedly across every media channel with requests for anyone with any information to contact the police immediately. The police also started to interview known offenders in the area whom had conducted similar miscreant offences. Always rule out the obvious first. However, two of the known offenders particularly stood out to them. Captain Bob, who was known to ride around the area trying to lure children to get in his camper van, inciting them with candy. And then there was Kimberly Shea Ruffner. 
he had been released from prison just two weeks before Dawn's murder, after serving time for the rape of two young girls. As Shea answered the police's questions, they noticed that he bore a very strong resemblance to the composite sketch. And he had no alibi for the time and date that the murder took place. The police were starting to suspect that one of these two offenders was their man. And then the police got a call from a woman. She told them that the composite sketch looked just like her neighbour, who had just moved into the area three weeks ago, one week before Dawn's murder. In April of 1984, Kirk Bloodsworth married the love of his life, Wanda. They had a very quick whirlwind romance, and Kirk was smitten with a vivacious, spirited, impulsive Wanda. She was quite a bit older than Kirk, and was more worldly and streetwise. But this didn't matter to 22-year-old Kirk. Wanda was the woman for him. After they married, Wanda had moved from her home in Baltimore to be with Kirk in Cambridge, Maryland. But Wanda didn't like the small community life. She missed the big city. And she also didn't like the lifestyle that accompanied Kirk's profession. Kirk had trained to be a Marine, but he realised very quickly that he missed life by the water and a more rural lifestyle and setting. So, after his training, he was honourably discharged from the Marines and decided to return to his hometown of Cambridge and become a waterman on the eastern shores of Maryland. The same profession as his father. A waterman makes their living by harvesting crabs and fish and oysters from the sea. But this wasn't the life that Wanda wanted at all. She was homesick and wanted to go back to Baltimore. And so, begrudgingly, Kirk agreed and he moved to the city to make her happy. But just as Wanda had not liked the rural, sleepy community life in Cambridge, Kirk, likewise, did not like the hustle and bustle of big city life in Baltimore. To add further contention, the couple were struggling financially. The house that he had moved into with Wanda in Baltimore housed eight other members of Wanda's relatives. But Kirk was the only member of the house that had a paycheck coming in. His entire income was going to sustain the household, and very little was left over for the couple. But Wanda wanted the fun times of their courtship back. The outings, the cinema, the dinners. But after Kirk had paid for all the household bills and food, there was nothing left over for niceties. The couple were soon arguing, and by July 1984, Kirk realised that after only three months of marriage, it just wasn't going to work between them. They were too different. Basically, he was a water sign and she was an earth sign, and together they made mud. He had promised Wanda that when he received his next paycheck, he would take her out to dinner. But when his next wage arrived in early July of 1984, Kirk instead decided to leave. It broke his heart to leave his wife, but he could just not live that life with her anymore. It just wasn't for him, much in the same way Cambridge had not been for her. So he moved back to Cambridge, his hometown. He had wanted to stay with his parents, but they were away, so his cousin kindly let Kirk stay with her until his parents returned. However, he had not told Wanda that he was leaving. Fearing yet another argument, he had instead just left. It was something he felt very guilty about, but at the same time, he hadn't seen another way out. Kirk had only been back in Cambridge for three weeks when he answered a knock at the door. It was the Baltimore police. They wanted him to come to the station and have a chat about the murder of Dawn Hamilton. Kirk was compliant, but nervous. He'd not had time to change his clothes, or grab any personal effects when the police had escorted him to the station. And in Kirk's sock was a quarter ounce of cannabis. He was convinced the police would find it during their questioning, and not being one to hide his feelings, his nervousness was very apparent to the officers. They also realised that the lady whom had called to say her neighbour looked like the composite was absolutely right. Kirk 
looked an awful lot like the sketch. And he did, except for a few small details. But let's face it, the boys had seen the man stood above them, with the sun beating down behind him. It was only natural that when seeing someone silhouetted, there may be minor discrepancies between the sketch and the perpetrator, such as hair colour. The boys had said the man they saw had curly blonde hair, and Kirk had curly red hair. During his lengthy questioning, Kirk alluded to his marriage problems as his reason for moving to the area, and this is when the police discovered that Wanda had actually filed a missing person report on Kirk after he disappeared, without telling her where he was going. When the police told Kirk about this, he responded by saying, Did a terrible thing. Kirk was referring to leaving without letting her know, and for not taking her out to dinner. After several hours of questioning, the police allowed Kirk to go. As he was about to walk out of the station, they stopped him and asked if he wouldn't mind a Polaroid picture being taken, and he complied. After the picture was taken, Kirk was allowed to leave, and he breathed a sigh of relief. Phew. But had the police just let the real killer leave? He was the least likely of the suspects, that was for sure. Kimberly Shea Ruffner was their prime target. Kirk went home, ate dinner with his cousin, and went to bed early. It had been an exhausting day, and he just wanted a good night's sleep. Open up! It's the Baltimore County Police Department. We have a warrant for the arrest of Kirk Bloodsworth. Step outside, Mr. Bloodsworth. You're under arrest for first-degree murder of Don Venice Hamilton, USOB. It was 2.45am, and 22-year-old Kirk Bloodsworth had just been arrested on suspicion of the first-degree murder of Dawn Hamilton. Within days, Kirk went up in front of a judge, and the list of charges were read out, as well as the corroborative evidence, one of which was Bloodsworth asking the police to apologise to his wife on his behalf for doing something terrible. As I mentioned before, Kirk had referred to leaving without letting her know, and for not taking her out to dinner. But the police had read much, much more into that statement. And as they say in the Miranda rights, anything you say may be held against you in a court of law. His nervous demeanour whilst being interviewed was also raised, as was his striking resemblance to the composite sketch. The judge agreed to the arrest charges, and Kirk was now going to face trial for first-degree murder, with the prosecutors aiming for the death penalty. As lawyers on each side started to build their case for and against Kirk, one issue became a sticking point. Kirk's hair. His flaming red hair which couldn't have been further from the blonde hair described by the boys. The lawyers approached the police and requested verification from the witnesses. So, the police showed Kirk's Polaroid to the two young boys. And both boys said that Kirk looked like the man they had seen, but the hair was wrong. The man they'd seen definitely had blonde hair, not red. Oh, and the man they saw was slim, with tanned skin. The man in the picture, being shown to them by the police, was mm, robust, and his skin was way too pale. So, to be completely sure they had the right man, the police decided to conduct a line-up. All the witnesses who had come forward during the investigation were invited to attend. Six witnesses attended the line-up, including the two young boys. Kirk was number six in the line. Four out of the six witnesses pointed Kirk out as the person they'd seen with Dawn on the day of the murder. The two that didn't pick him out were the two young boys. Incidentally, the woman that had also compiled a composite of the suspect for the police, the sketch that the police dismissed, yeah, she was not invited to the lineup. By now, the media had caught wind of the arrest, and Kirk's face was blasted across every media channel. 
his face emblazoned on every screen and newspaper front cover in the drive-carefully state. A few days after the lineup, the parents of the two young boys contacted the police to tell them that their children had made a mistake. They'd picked the wrong man in the lineup. The boys now identified suspect number six in the lineup. Kirk. Hmm. The police were applauded by the authorities for their swift action and quick arrest. Baltimore's finest were the pride of the state. Kirk and his family could not afford a lawyer, so one was appointed to him, and the lawyer came to visit him in prison. As they sat, facing each other, divided by a glass partition, he told Kirk, Don't worry, I know my way around a courtroom, and I know my way around a criminal justice system, and we're going to find our way out of here together. The lawyer got up and turned to leave the room, and promptly ran straight into a wall. And Kirk's heart sank. If his lawyer couldn't find his way out of a small room without hitting a brick wall, how on earth was he going to get him out of a first-degree murder trial and potential death penalty? Seven months after Kirk's arrest, the case went to the grand jury. The prosecutor's case rested heavily on Kirk's similarity to the composite sketch, the 100% lineup identification, his nervous disposition in interviewing, and on the statement to the police that he'd done a terrible thing. Oh, and he also did not have an alibi for his whereabouts at the date and time of the murder. The defendant's case rested solely on the fact that Kirk was an honourably discharged Marine, with no previous record, and the fact that he had red hair, pale skin, and was far more stout than the description provided by the two young boys, whom were the key witnesses in the trial. These were all facts that the prosecution tore to shreds when they highlighted how silhouetting can distort colours and features. The grand jury indicted Kirk on all counts, and the judge, he sentenced Kirk to death by gassing. When his conviction was read, a whoop went up through the courtroom, and Dawn's parents wept with relief. He was transferred to the Maryland Penitentiary. Built in 1811, the massive stone penitentiary looms in East Baltimore like a foreboding medieval castle. It was a notorious prison, known for housing the state's worst offenders, and for having some of the harshest rules and conditions. As Kirk walked down the hallway towards his cell, inmates hissed and whispered to him as he passed them. We're going to get you, Kirk. We're going to do to you what you did to that little girl. The state has executed 314 individuals in its history, nearly all at the penitentiary, and most by hanging the remnants of which also served as a haunting reminder of Bloodsworth's fate, as there was still an outline of the scaffolding on the courtyard wall. Life inside the prison was even darker and more barbarous than the imposing Gothic facade had belied. I have only given a brief description of Dawn's murder, that she was brutally attacked and sexually assaulted and had been choked to death. I thought this description was bad enough without going into the full details, but, suffice to say, it was so vicious, sadistic and barbaric that the media dubbed Kirk as the most hated man in America. And waiting for him on the inside of the prison were men who wanted to be known as the man who killed the most hated man in America. Because of the high potential volatility rate towards Kirk, he was kept in near isolation, staying in his cell for 23 hours a day, allowed out for only one but sadistic, vengeful behaviour wasn't limited just to other inmates. Oh no. One day, the guards came to Kirk and told him they had some work detail for him. They wanted him to paint a room. Well, when you're locked up in a 10 by 4 cell for 23 hours a day, even the prospect of painting a room is a welcome diversion. So Kirk was happy to comply. The guards took him to a room, but the detail was not as the guards had described. It turned out to be a nine-foot-tall hexagonal steel vault with a sealed glass window for witnesses to look through. Square in the centre of the cramped space, bolted to the floor, sat a steel chair with leather legs, arms and chest straps. And it was nicknamed 
the captain's chair. And this was the chair that Kirk was sentenced to die in, the very chair he was now being told to paint. Whilst he worked, the guards also took it upon themselves to explain how the process of death worked. Hydrochloric acid would be poured into the vat beneath the chair. Once strapped in, at the warden's signal, the executioner would mechanically drop cyanide pellets into the acid, filling the vault with putrid fumes that would sear Bloodsworth's eyes and nostrils before reaching his lungs. The condemned are told to take deep breaths to avoid prolonging the agony. Gasping and choking would precede panicked contortions and seizures. All in all, it would take about ten minutes to die. Longer for a big guy like young, 225-pound Kirk. From that day forward, each time Kirk walked into the exercise yard, he couldn't stop himself from looking up at the concrete ventilation pipes where the deadly gas left the chamber atop the penitentiary's roof. He began suffering suffocation nightmares, waking up and vomiting afterwards. The torment and fear became so overwhelming that Kirk decided he had to do something. He couldn't just sit there, waiting to be beaten up by the other inmates, waiting for his last meal, and waiting to die. He started to research his case, looking into each witness statement, each piece of evidence, looking for loopholes, looking for wrongdoing, for anything that may suggest a miscarriage of justice. Anything that would help him get out of this hellhole. Why, I hear you ask? Because Kirk believed he was innocent. He'd maintained his innocence throughout the entire investigation, the trial, the sentencing, and now through his penance. But no one believed him. Only he believed in himself. And so he began a one-man crusade. He figured that as there was no blood, no hair, no fibres and no bodily fluids to connect him to the murder, and that his death sentence had been based on circumstantial evidence and witness statements only, that there had to be a way out. He kept digging and burrowing and reading, and eventually he believed he had enough evidence for an appeal. An appeal was granted, and his case went to retrial. The new evidence submitted was that the police had failed to make known in the first trial that they had other suspects that they were looking at. Captain Bob and Kimberly Shea Ruffner, and the fact that there was no physical evidence tying him to the scene or the crime, and that his words for his wife did a terrible thing was completely taken out of context. Kirk and his lawyers held their breath as the jury fell back into the courtroom. Kirk's heart thumped in his chest, and he felt lightheaded. He had stars in front of his eyes. These twelve strangers held the fate of his life in their hands. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Kirk openly wept as the verdict was read. The only saving grace was that this time he'd been given two life sentences and the death penalty had been taken off the table. Kirk was shackled and taken back to prison, to a new cell no longer on death row. But back in prison, Kirk's mental health and spirit hit rock bottom. He might not have the death penalty hanging over his head, but he now faced the rest of his natural life in prison. He felt distraught, aimless, and adrift. He no longer spent hours researching his case, for what was the point? He'd exhausted all his avenues. This ten-by-four cell, with its steel furnishings, was where he was going to spend the rest of his days. And then one day, he received a parcel from a relative. It contained four books. The first book was on how to create origami. Yeah, he gave that to another inmate. Definitely wasn't his thing. The second book was about pastoral drawings. Mm, okay, that appealed to him, so he kept that one. The third book was The Joy of Sex. <laughs> Yeah, he threw that one in the trash as he knew he would never need it. But the fourth book was called The Blooding by Joseph Wambau. It was a book outlining the murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth in Narborough, Leicestershire, 
in England, the very case we covered in last week's episode, and how DNA had been used for the very first time to convict Colin Pitchfork for their murders. I had an epiphany. If it could convict you, why can't it free you? Kirk started rifling through his paperwork from his case. He was sure he'd seen something, somewhere, about spermatozoa having been on the swabs. His cell became a white blizzard as papers flew in all directions as he frantically searched for this one statement. And he found it, on the autopsy report. He immediately wrote to the prosecutor and broached and requested that he took a DNA test. And a week later, he received a response, and it said, We regret to inform you that the DNA has been inadvertently destroyed. Kirk was devastated. His last vestige of hope gone. He felt his spirits plummet. Prison life was hard enough, and the only thing that kept him going was hope. When this was gone, well, there seemed to be no choice but to accept the depressive, dark environment that surrounded him and now engulfed his very being. In a last-ditch attempt, he decided to send out letters many, many letters to lawmakers, prosecutors, defendants, judges, anyone he could think of, begging them for help, asking, how does evidence just get destroyed, especially in a death penalty case? He received only one response from the plethora of letters he'd sent out. It was from a Gary Christopher, whom was a defender in the Federal Public Defender's Office. Christopher said that he knew someone who may be able to help, a man called Bob Morin, and he was going to try to get Bob to come and see Kirk in prison. And Kirk couldn't believe it. Finally, someone was willing to talk to him, willing to help him, to get out of this hell. And so Kirk waited and waited, and for days he sat and waited and prayed and hoped and begged with every fibre within him and to any higher power for this Bob to come see him. Some weeks later, Kirk was told he had a visitor. It was Bob Morin. Arming himself with every piece of evidence he had, armfuls of binders, books and notes, he sat down in front of Bob. And as he opened his mouth to start his pitch, Bob put his hand up to silence him, and he told Kirk he'd only come to the prison that day to tell him that they wouldn't be taking his case. Kirk, with his mouth opened, poised, ready to present his evidence, was gutted. But this was Kirk's last chance. No one else had responded to his letters. It was this lawyer or a lifetime in the penitentiary. He asked Maureen for just five minutes of his time, and if, after five minutes, he didn't want to take the case, Kirk would raise no objection and Morin agreed. Five minutes later, Kirk had a new lawyer. And what's more, Morin was so convinced of Kirk's innocence, he agreed to take on the case, pro bono. Morin's team launched a massive search and investigation of all the paperwork associated with the case. But time and time again, they kept coming up against brick walls. There was a tremendous amount of speculation surrounding the case. No actual hard physical evidence, but there was also no new evidence to warrant a retrial. So, Morin's team contacted Anne Brobst, the prosecutor that I mentioned before that told Kirk the evidence was destroyed. Once again, she informed them that all evidence was gone. But, like Kirk, Morin did not believe her. So, he decided to go to the courthouse himself. Twice. He searched the archives. He searched everywhere, rummaged through every store cupboard he could find. And there really was nothing. But Kirk was adamant that there had to be. There wasn't just the physical clothing evidence, but there had been swabs. And swabs should have been kept, especially part of a death penalty case. The evidence had to be at the courthouse somewhere. And so, on a phone call to Maureen, he begged. You gotta go back and check. He said, I've already been twice. I said, 
Man, you gotta go one more time. So, begrudgingly, Morin went back to the courthouse. And sure enough, the evidence wasn't there. Defeated, once again, Morin made his way out of the building. Just as he was about to leave the courthouse, he bumped into one of the clerks from Kirk's trial. The clerk asked what he was doing there, and Morin explained that he was looking for the evidence in the Hamilton Bloodsworth case. I know where that is. It's in the judge's closet, in a paper bag, sitting in the floor, in a cardboard box. And sitting on the floor, in a cardboard box, in a judge's office, sat the key to Kirk's freedom. Morin paid for all the DNA testing himself, so convinced of Kirk's innocence. Some many weeks later, Morin received the DNA evidence results. And uh, they were not what they'd been hoping for. Test after test showed that the samples were so corrosive that no DNA could be gleaned, as there wasn't enough cells still determinable. There was only one test that actually showed half a cell of DNA. That's it. Half a cell of DNA. Out of all of the samples, just half a cell. And so Morin had to call Kirk with the news. Kirk, you're innocent, man! You're innocent! Duh, well, Kirk knew that. But would a judge, would a jury... DNA evidence had never been presented at trial before in the United States, and all they had was half a cell of DNA. It was an unheard of science. Yes, it had convicted a killer in England, but would the courts permit such evidence to be admissible at trial in the USA? It's a story that really is nothing short of incredible. A man who was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison now has a brand new life. With the stroke of a judge's pen, Kirk Bloodsworth was set free today after DNA tests cleared him of the murder of a nine-year-old girl. After eight years, ten months and nineteen days, with two of those years on death row, Kirk was free, acquitted and liberated. As he stepped through the gates of the prison, he felt the weight of the world lift from his shoulders. He had never known exhilaration like it. It was a good day. He'd gone from being the most hated man in America to now the most celebrated man in America. But what was life like for Kirk on the outside? That first night, I, I stayed home. It was four o'clock in the morning, and I just popped up out of bed. I had to go to the bathroom. And the next thing I know, I'm taking a leak on the lamp. And I, I finally got myself and my girlfriend. She said, what are you doing? I was, never mind. I know where I'm at now. I was just laughing so hard, and, and we cleaned the mess up. And I went out in the kitchen, and... I seen a toaster sitting there, and I was staring at this damn thing for like five minutes, you know, in the coffee pot, and I got two pieces of bread, and I popped them in the toaster, and I pushed that thing down, and I was just waiting, and I buttered this toast, and I sat it there, and I picked up the phone at 4.30 or so in the morning and called Bob Moore on the phone. I said, guess what I'm doing? He says, I don't care. <laughs> It's four o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? I said, I'm making toast. However, life on the outside wasn't the freedom and joy he'd spent almost nine years praying for. Shortly after Kirk was released, the prosecutor's office, you know, and Brobst, released a statement to the media saying that if they'd had the DNA evidence in 1984, they would not have prosecuted Kirk. But they would still have considered him a suspect, and so they were not prepared to say that he was innocent. He started getting phone calls to his house, death threats. DNA fingerprinting was so new that many people didn't believe in it, and they thought Kirk had been released on a fad of voodoo science, and so he was still seen as a murderer 
by the public at large. This public perception of him, the daily threats, the inability to be able to get a job, because, you know, no one wanted to hire a convicted child killer, still considered a suspect by the prosecutor's office, all took a toll on his second marriage. And sadly, Kirk and his wife divorced. This all took a massive toll on Kirk's mental health. Everywhere he went, he was stared at, pointed at, and whispers followed him through every aisle of every stall. With the chin wagging behind hands everywhere he went, and the constant, relentless death threats at home, there was nowhere that Kirk felt safe or at ease. Dejected, depressed, and down on his luck, Kirk began drinking heavily to numb the pain. After fighting for his life to get out of prison, he now had no semblance of life on the outside. It all got too much for Kirk, and so he decided he needed to talk to somebody. So he chose his friend, Barry Sheck, a lawyer, whom just happened to have started the Innocence Project in 1992. The Innocence Project came about because of DNA testing, and it used this new science to exonerate the wrongly convicted, with the aim of reforming the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. Barry told Kirk about the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS as it is known for short, which is an online DNA database. It had been created to store the results of all DNA tests, and furthermore, 16,000 inmates in the state of Maryland had been tested, and their data was in CODIS. And Kirk had another eureka moment. If the DNA from Dawn Hamilton's case could be put into the database, it might find the real killer. And Kirk could finally, finally be fully exonerated and pardoned. He contacted the prosecutor's office immediately. You remember? Anne Probst. And asked her to put the DNA from his case into the system. But ah, she refused. Citing. We don't have the money. So Kirk offered to pay for it. But he was told. We can't do that because that would be unethical because you're still the suspect. Hmm. Every avenue this poor man tries to take, he seems to hit a brick wall. Whereas previously Kirk had managed to break through each and every brick wall that had blocked his path. This one, he couldn't tear down. He couldn't pay for the test to be done because he was still a suspect in the murder, and he would continue to be a suspect until the test was done. Talk about Catch-22. <laughs> so, all Kirk could do was wait until the prosecutor's office finally had the money to test the DNA in Dawn's case. And so, he waited and waited, all the while still receiving death threats on the phone and pointed fingers and hushed whispers wherever he went. And still, he waited. Ten years later, the DNA was finally tested. No, no, th no, that wasn't a glitch in your sound. You heard me correctly. Ten years it took them to finally, finally test the sample. Kirk was at home when he received a call from none other than Anne Brobst. Incidentally, what I haven't told you about Anne Brobst is that she was the prosecutor in both of Kirk's trials. And in both of them, she told the jury that he was a monster. Very matter-of-factly, and without any hint of an apology or regret, she informed Kirk that the sample had a hit in CODIS. And they knew the identity of the real killer of nine-year-old Dawn Hamilton. It was Kimberly Shay Ruffner one of the very first suspects in the police investigation, the very one that had just been released from jail in 1985 after serving time for raping two young girls, the very same man that had actually occupied a cell on the floor below him at Maryland State Penitentiary, the very man that knew that Kirk was doing the time for his crime and said nothing. And the reason that the police had decided to dismiss Ruffner as a suspect and instead go after Kirk? Because the two young boys whom had created the composite sketch had told the police that the suspect was six foot five and Ruffner 
was five foot six, whereas Kirk was six foot, which made him closer in height to the young boy's statement. Hmm. That pustular retrograde Rofner was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life imprisonment, which would come into effect after he finished serving his current life sentence. So he'll be about 75 when he finally smells freedom again. But I personally hope he never smells freedom again. Kirk received a full exoneration and pardon in 2004. Well, hallelujah and amen. Now that the finger-pointing, the whispering and the death threats had all ceased, life, finally, finally, could start afresh for Kirk. However, by now, he was in his forties. He'd never had a solid job or a career for the best part of two decades, and the world had moved on so much since his incarceration that it was often hard for him to understand the newfangled gadgets and computers, which, sadly, fairly much rendered him unemployable. What was he to do? The last thing he wanted was to spiral into depression and drinking again, he needed to find a vocation, something whereby he could utilise the talents he did have. And the two talents that were Kirk's strengths were his dogmatic, unwavering tenacity and his ability to motivate through speech. Oh, and there was one other thing. His experience. What he had endured. And Kirk just couldn't get it out of his head that if it had happened to him, it must have happened to others. There must be other innocent people banged up in prison, or like him, sitting on death row. He felt a strong need to help them, to give them support, advice, contacts and resources that he had not been able to access when he was incarcerated, until Bob Morin had given Kirk five minutes of his time. So he began doing motivational speeches throughout the state, at schools, at prisons, at senior citizen centres, wherever anyone would hear him. And his speeches caught the attention of the Witness to Innocent organisation, a Philadelphia-based coalition of death row exonerees who work to end capital punishment. They invited Kirk to be an assistant director, whereby he could use his experience and motivational speeches to help remove the death penalty altogether. Now, in America, capital punishment, or the death penalty, is decided by state legislature, not the federal government. And so Kirk began to petition to the Maryland State Senate to abolish the death penalty. He garnered thousands of signatures in support, arranged hundreds of protests outside the state courts. But their cries seemed to fall on deaf ears with the lawmakers. Why, I hear you ask? Well, Senate President Mike Miller was not a supporter of abolishing the death penalty, and for years he had stalled every bill in committee regarding the abolishment. But still, Kirk pushed and pushed until eventually in 2009, the abolishment bill was put before the Senate. Kirk and his supporters held their breath as the bill was debated and discussed. And then the Senate delivered the outcome they would not remove the death penalty. Hmm. But they would institute the tightest death penalty restrictions in the country, limiting capital cases to those with biological or DNA evidence of guilt, a videotape confession, or a videotape linking the defendant to a homicide. Whereas previously, this type of evidence was not mandatory for a death sentence. Well... It was better than the previous law, I suppose, but it didn't satisfy Kirk. He wanted an all-out abolishment, and he wasn't going to give up. And he didn't. He spoke to every senator, every congressman, every congresswoman that he could garner support from. And eventually, his slow, methodical, dogmatic tenacity, the same one that had secured his exoneration and pardon, paid off once again. In 2013, the bill went through the Senate and up to the General Assembly. In other words, the actual abolishment of the death penalty in the state of Maryland 
would be voted on. Kirk was, as always, optimistic, but those around him weren't. The President of the Senate was still Mike Miller, and he was still in full favour of keeping the death penalty. So those around Kirk didn't think it would ever reach the floor for a full vote. But the bill did actually go to the floor, and a vote ensued. Kirk and his entire team waited with bated breath. It was now or never. Their hearts raced as the vote started to trickle in. And... Thank you so very, very much for all of your, all of your hard work on this important issue. He he did it. It had taken twenty eight years in total, which included eight years of incarceration and two years on death row, and eleven years of finger pointing and death threats. But finally, finally, after twenty eight years, Kirk had killed the very thing that had almost killed him. So, he'd set out what he achieved to do. So what now? Well, come on. I think you've all gotten a good idea of just how remarkable, tenacious and motivated Kirk Bloodsworth is. And he was not about to sit on his laurels. He went on to publish a book called Bloodsworth, and it was about his experience. This led to a documentary called Bloodsworth, An Innocent Man, both of which have been my main resource base for today's episode. But fun as all that was, Kirk wasn't done with trying to change laws. He drummed up support for another bill, which was also voted through the Senate. It was the Innocence Protection Act, which established the Kirk Bloodsworth post-conviction DNA testing programme. And this programme will provide funding for testing, so that no one will ever have to wait ten years to be pardoned like he did. Today, you can still hear 58-year-old Kirk giving his motivational speeches at churches, schools and centres. He is now the director of the Witness for Innocence organisation and has become one of the most sought-after anti-capital punishment advocates in the country, as well as being a key influencer in helping other states abolish the death penalty. Way to go, Kirk. At the time of writing this episode, 30 states in America still have capital punishment, and 20, including D.C., do not. To put this into context, to date, since 1989, since DNA testing has been used in U.S. courtrooms, there have been over 1,700 exonerations. Recently, there has been about 10 a month. A 2014 study conducted by the National Academy of Sciences claims that 4.1% of people sentenced to death are innocent. This means that of the 33,000 people that have been put to death in the United States since 1977, 1,320 souls were innocent. Yeah, I'll just let that one sink in. Last week, we heard the story of how the egregious Colin Pitchfork was the first man in the world to be convicted using DNA. And today, you've heard Kirk's story, that of an incredibly resolute, steadfast man who broke down every wall and every barrier in search of the truth to become the first person in the world to be exonerated using DNA. My one regret about today's episode, and it's something that sits outside of how I normally construct my stories, and that is the lack of background information I've provided on Dawn Hamilton. I always like to give you a little insight into their lives, their hobbies, their characters, so that you, like me, can feel an emotional connection to them. Sadly, I was not able to do this for Dawn. Search as I did, I could not find any information on her, other than her horribly brutal murder. But, whilst I couldn't find any background on Dawn, I am consoled by the fact that only was her true murderer finally convicted, thus giving Dawn's family closure. But her death was not in vain. 
two beautiful young girls, both called Dawn, on opposite sides of the Atlantic, whom suffered brutal and tragic deaths. But both of their murders, as well as that of Linda Mann, went on to become the catalyst to change the way criminal investigation and trial proceedings are conducted across the world today. So you could say it was the dawn of a new era, thanks to those beautiful girls that lost their lives and the people involved in their cases whom would not give up no matter what barriers they faced. Superintendent David Baker in the Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth cases in the UK and Kirk Bloodsworth, whom never gave up trying, pushing and fighting for freedom and exoneration in the Dawn Hamilton case. They utilised a little-known scientific discovery, which went on to give the world an immeasurably valuable resource to solve both cases, as well, as we know in the case of Kirk, to exonerate the wrongly accused. Thanks has to go to Dr Alec Jeffries whom by pure accident, whilst researching haemoglobin in seals, discovered a stutter in their genetic makeup, which paved the way for DNA profiling. You all deserve medals, in my opinion. Just one last note before I sign off. Kirk Bloodsworth's middle name is Noble. Very befitting, don't you think? I personally think it should be his first name, don't you? I hope you enjoyed today's story, Kirk's story, a man that would not give up on justice, even when it seemed as though justice had given up on him. And if you like this story, or the podcast in general, would you mind rating and reviewing at Apple iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts? You would be making one little podcaster who is very aware she has some sound issues, and so has put new audio equipment on my Christmas wish list. Very happy. Let's hope Father Christmas receives my letter. Oh, and let's hope he's not in self-isolation on Christmas Eve, eh? And now it's on to that time of the show where I'm probably asking your uncle to play the ukulele in Urdu rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. Oh yes, it's on to the country thanks. So this week I'd like to thank Hungary, Hello Ish Kusonam, and Cyprus, Yesas kye efaristau. Yeah, I was never very good at music. Certainly never learnt to play the ukulele. My deepest apologies. So long as you know I'm grateful. Also, why don't you come join me on Facebook and Instagram? Just look up Darkside. I'd love to have you along for the ride. Or if you'd like to have a private chat or provide some feedback, you can contact me directly at info at darksidepodcast.co.uk So, with that said, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert. Soon, over and out.